Constructed Criticism is sponsored by Oasis Games. MTGOasis.com is the place to get cards for your next Magic event. Try them out with code CCMTG for 15% off of your first order, and use the code Would That Be Good for 4% off of every order. Want to support the show directly? Head on over to patreon.com slash ccmtg to check out some awesome benefits and future goals for the show. Thanks for listening, and here's this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at purentgeo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 392nd episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your always ready to go host, Mason, joined by my two always ready to go hosts, co hosts, which was not a tongue twister at all, Spencer and Abe. Spencer, how are you doing? You're back. I'm back. I'm doing good. I, Abe, I feel like he should introduce me as producer and you as co host. Do you feel that way? Just so it doesn't get confusing. But you're a co-host. I mean, I'm both. That's just confusing. That feels like you're roping your chair. What is what does roping your chair mean? You ever been on a movie set and uh, someone doesn't want anyone else to sit in their chair, so they rope the chair. Oh, uh, even a big movie star like me, you know, I'm in uh, yeah, other sorry. people coming out soon, soon. So yeah, I, uh, the game has changed me. I can't lie. That's funny. <laughs> I know it's funny because Spencer said it's funny and didn't laugh. That's the classic way you know something's funny. Am I right, Abe? Yeah, just like I think it's funny that you had to like fight a real urge to go to the polar opposite of Always Ready Host, despite Always Ready being quite a good thing to be. be I feel like if that's your instinct, Mason, just a little note on air. Maybe you should lead with a more self-deprecating... Why, why, why can't we build everyone up? We don't have to d- take me down to build well, you why, why does it feel like it's your instinct to take everyone down? <laughs> I don't think to take everyone down. It's just to do the opposite of the oh, thing. Oh, everyone else down. All right. <laughs> no, no. Whoa, let's relax. Let's relax. <laughs> there you go. Let's move on to that. That is the main purpose of the show. We're going to be talking about how to win a 1K here in just a little bit. But first, we need to do hashtag always proving it is the point of the show. And my notes say it's Abe's turn. So, Abe. I have kind of a little little content moment where I have been getting kind of been dragged into being a little more seriously involved in playing Final Fantasy XIV, and in that involves doing high-end raid content, apparently. And so I've kind of had to learn that from the ground up and really just going in and diving in not only on, you know, just like thinking about different kinds of optimization problems, looking out into content to find, like, the right things. Like how you felt when you were playing Guilty Gear a while ago, I know you talked about that, but just, like, finding the right content for, like, what I'm looking for and thinking about how that can... Like, how the presence of that content makes me think about what I need to be doing or what I should be doing for magic. Oh, I just have a note on, on Abe's. Just, like, I think it's really interesting the way that the, the three of us and some of our friends think about content. Because, like, obviously, I think a few weeks ago, I, I showed the, the podcast listeners kind of like, you know, I've got a tab for Halo. I've got a tab for Smash. I've got a tab for Magic on my bookmarks bar to like find the content that I'm looking for for a given thing, whether it's a smash character, whether it's a deck that I'm learning at the time in magic or, you know, whether it's, you know, learning the basics of, of playing halo and stuff like that. I think that we might be a little bit different in that in looking at kind of like 
you know, when Guilty Gear, for example, Mason, you said it was actually kind of hard to find the type of content you were looking for, right? Yeah, it really was. And it's like, I wonder why that is, because, like, I know a lot of people with the mindset that we have, and I wonder if the content is only good at certain levels for a certain amount of time, and then they're looking for something else kind of problem, but it's interesting. I've really been in the, like, the market of looking for this kind of content because I'm leveling up beyond, like, just being someone who, like, you know, I just play this MMO casually, like, to do the things I like to do, like, enjoy the game. Uh, and like the story or whatever kind of was just how I've been playing it so changing that kind of led me down a path of like now I've joined like several discords on finding like the best in slot stuff and like where I need to go to do that or like you know what I should be practicing as far as my like opening rotation like all these things are things you never would think about and I'd never really thought about playing the game up until doing something more difficult so I think it might just be a thing where a lot of people especially when it comes to gaming like they're not necessarily they don't have to be taking it super seriously right there's tons of kitchen table magic players who feel the same way there's probably not there's like no content for somewhere between like learn how to play the cards and build a commander deck or play a tournament but the, the large valley of experience between there best in slot is actually a really interesting thing to think about when you compare kind of what you were doing to your analog to magic i was tuning a nihilist that uh, for standard uh, Matt Kling, former coast of the show, was looking for something fun to kind of play for our Wednesday night standard event at Oasis Games. Shout out. And one of the things that he found was a list of 5 out a league that was kind of like this gold span dragon shadows showdown of the scalds deck. And I was like, well, you don't have to do a lot to convince Spencer to play showdown. So, um, but I, I kind of tuned that list and just kind of started crushing with it. It was really surprising the game that it had. We were going to record a video, but Matt didn't want to fork out the money to buy the deck on his account because he was like pretty convinced that it was favored against Blue Black and was pretty convinced that it's not. We actually jumped online with me, I think, uh, Saturday and played a bunch of games with me as well. And we got to like talking about the changes that I made to the list and, and things that I haven't gotten to do with you know my friends in a long time. Um, kind of Matt and Quentin getting back into magic has been really helpful for me as far as like getting instant feedback from people that I trust that are close to me that, you know, have pro tour experience. It was really nice. If you want to see the deck list and kind of where I've ended up, it is in the Patreon discord, but I think that the deck is actually quite strong and I'm excited to see what neon dynasty gives it. It's always great to see the kind of late game in game standard decks pop up, you know, late stage capitalism, late stage standard. Matt had a hot take that I'll just kind of share on the podcast that he doesn't even know that blue red is even playable right now in standard just because like people are so tuned to beat it. And he and I are pretty both set on mono green actually just being the best deck in standard right now. I don't know enough about the standard format. It doesn't sound unrealistic. People have given up on this one and I'm not sure why it's a really fun format that is kind of like rotating, like a rotating door. It's kind of what I like in standard formats where like different decks are good at different times. It's like a very Brad Nelson format if you guys kind of get what I'm saying there. Any alchemy news, Mason? You got any? <laughs> uh, changes are coming after this weekend, they said, because it's a term this weekend. <laughs> I-, I did see that list in the in the Discord and thought it looked really cool. It was a thing where I was like, if there was, if there was something to play, if only, I would have, I would have definitely fired it up. Uh, my always improving moment comes from this past weekend. I was talking about uh, Yawgmoth versus Blue White with uh, somebody. Well, technically, we started talking about Blue White versus Yawgmoth, and she mentioned how the matchup was really hard for her, and I because she plays Blue White, and I thought it would be really hard for me on Yawgmoth because I assumed that 
despite being able to pressure in sort of weird ways with like undying creatures needing prismatic ending and grist uh taxing that as well or calling into a yogmoth type situation where like cord you counter it and then i play yogmoth and i combo you i thought while those things were prevalent i thought that the blue white deck would actually be able to break up the individual points a lot more efficiently than i thought and so in my head I kind of did the classic oversimplification of the matchup, I think. You know, you have this answer here, this answer there, and, like, we're kind of curving out perfectly and failed to account for the the classic problem of magic and fell into the trap, really, that, like, you know, games don't actually play out that way almost ever. That's actually a very small subset of our games where we have our best draws, and we more often have these disjointed draws, and we need to kind of make things come together, and especially for a deck like Yawgmoth. And so I got to play some of that matchup, I won the match, but the, the match was very close that we played, and it was very revealing where it's like, oh, wow, like, if I did not have this Grist on actual two, and she didn't miss her land drop on, like, this actual turn, he, like, I very easily lose the game of either of those things winning, or if not lose, the game is much, much closer than it was, and it was very, it was, like, down to, like, insects needing to be wrath multiple times and stuff like that, and I just failed to do a good job of actually expanding how the game would play out in my head, uh, which is something that we talked about last week. But also, I, I failed to really think about how... I, I mean, I, in the game, I was able to do it, but outside the game, I didn't do a good job thinking about how I can pressure the blue-white players in various ways with things like... If I have a couple of noble hierarchs, I don't even need to put anything else on the board, and I get to like threaten this court of calling in response, right? It's like any sort of wrath. And so now it's like, okay, I'm hitting you for three. You have to answer these ignobles in some way. And your prismatic endings are so, so taxed in that matchup that that's not like a, it's almost never an exchangeable, a favorable exchange. So uh, that was my always improving moment, kind of getting in there and challenging my thoughts in the arena of ideas and coming out pretty uh, happy about it all. You know, and I feel the match was much worse than I thought it was before. So I found two really think two things really interesting in what you just said. Um, the first was kind of something that I think that control decks and ramp decks taught me really well. You're not going to have your best draw all the time. How do you put together a mishmash of like multiple types of good draws uh, to, come to the point where you win the game when thinking that uh you also talked about kind of like learning about the matchup through a win i wonder at what point in everyone's magic career they start to get better at this like what is the curve in which you stop saying well i'm winning the matchup so it must be good to actually talking to yourself or talking to your friends about what actually is happening in the matchup because I know for me, I think it took a while to kind of like go beyond just I'm winning this matchup, thus it must be good to what you did. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's kind of hard. You have to kind of get to a point where you can trust yourself and be able to like, not that it's hard to think about matchups critically, but you do have to consider a lot of things and kind of find the truth of the matchup, you know what I mean? And, like, what actually matters. And so I, I think it is probably harder than it seems at first glance, since obviously a lot of people do it <laughs> at first, uh, myself included. So, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it is an interesting thing. I, I'm curious to probably think about that a bunch this week. It's hard always to think between the results that you're seeing and the feedback you're getting and then also being willing to, like, analyze. Like you were saying, like, if you didn't have Grist on turn two or if your opponent didn't miss their land drop on like a, a pivotal turn the game the entire game changes and i think it's kind of a thing where looking at those things is really important you know what which kind of draw you have knowing to look at that instead of like thinking of all the ways it could have gone wrong instead of all the ways it did go right or vice versa all the ways it could have gone right but it went wrong is, is really where we start to get into that 
if you go back to like the Guilty Gear example or the Final Fantasy XIV example, right? What Mason is actually looking for is to be able to ask the th- like the three wives or the five wives or whatever around why things are happening for him in Guilty Gear. And the same thing is happening for you in Final Fantasy where you're like, why is this gear best in slot? Like, what can we have a discussion about it so that I understand versus the thing that I'm thinking or, or whatever? And like, you have to do that in Magic too, where why is it important to go one drop into Grist? If you're not asking those questions and you're just going off the results, you're missing more than half of it, in all honesty, right? I think that it's everybody should should learn what, from what Mason just said because I think what you said was was really hard for a lot of people, but you also did it in a way that was really clear and concise. So, Spencer, is there any housekeeping we need to do before we move on to the main topic today? So I believe, yeah, there's a couple things that I wanted to talk about really quick. When you're hearing this episode, it could already be up, but I'll be setting up in Melee this week the tournament, and I think I think that we decided this one was going to be Alchemy. Is that correct, Mason? Yes. So we were going to do Alchemy after Neon Dynasty released. And then just a quick reminder, uh, you know, we are giving a lot of Oasis Store credit to those whose YouTube comments are picked at the end of the show, as well as the Patreon questions. It doesn't have to be a question on the YouTube comment either. I think that we kind of made it sound like it did. But, like, if you leave a sweet YouTube comment, I'll read it on the show. You know, leave a comment. It's really helpful for the show. You know, tell us what you think about the show. I know that I left a comment two weeks ago on YouTube, and I didn't get to say it to Abe, so I'll say it on the show. But, like, man, I really loved your setup on the show when you were in another room. I thought it looked great. Oh, yeah. We put a lot of time in making sure it looked nice, too. That was down to down to keeping the cat ears on the headphones I was using. It was pristine. Yeah, I liked it a lot. But yeah, leave a YouTube comment, and then the event should come. Uh, I should be posted. I gotta look at dates and stuff uh, and check with my wife. Um, but yeah, the event's happening. I've talked to Oasis. Just a quick reminder: five hundred dollars in store credit to Oasis is already guaranteed, and then the prizes will go up um, depending on the number of entrants. And well, let's move on to our main topic today. We're gonna talk about winning your local 1K and Spencer, this idea was kind of your topic and something you really wanted to talk about. So can you kind of break down like what sparked uh, this sort of topic and then, you know, kind of set us up into it so we can get into the nitty gritty. There comes a point in every young magic player's life where they want more from themselves. You know, they want more than just boosties at the end of the event and they, they want some cold, hard cash. And, you know, one of the best ways to get that cold hard cash is to play in uh, local level cash events. And I'm curious, uh, before we get too far into this, Abe and Mason, do you guys have 1Ks or 1K pluses or 5Ks near you outside of, you know, the SEGs? Not really. There's uh, Knoxville's like three hours from me. And they have a 2K to a 5K, depending on the format every month. They have oh, one cool. of those. A six-hour round trip, and they have it on Sundays. So I, I don't make them out to that too much. Yeah, if it was Saturdays, it'd be snap it off. You know, I got a day to rest. You know, and I've done st- a bunch of stuff like that with the SEG IQs. They're essentially like case. Level up games near me. But it, it's pretty good. The entry's good. Uh, there's also some store in Pennsylvania that recently ran, like, a free 3K or something. You just had to, like, sign up because they were trying to, like, advertise for... There's, like, a bunch of different things, like a game they were advertising and, like, the different stores and stuff to, like, just get people in the room. I've been I've been getting my hands 
hands into into my piece of the pie for sure in in some one case once kind of gpt's disappeared and pptq's disappeared for at least for me locally and I, one of the reasons that, that this topic came up is spencer i know that you last you know a few years ago were playing all of the one case after removal of a lot of these local events supported by wizards our stores started doing you know 1ks and 2ks to kind of support the the local magic scene you know i haven't been having success uh it was the one listener specifically i had a long conversation about it and it really sparked this topic of like is there something different that you're doing for a local 1k different than what you might do at an fnm or on your arena ladder run because i think it is actually substantially different for example than your arena ladder run and i think it is substantially different than something like your local fnm what makes it different and i want, kind of want to cover those things yeah sure so you, you make about a thousand dollars if you win no. uh, <laughs> oh sorry my bad I, we'll skip that part we'll skip that part of the show probably the best place to start is picking a deck right the tournament starts before the tournament starts right and x amount of players are eliminated before the first round even happens thanks to deck selection and things of that nature. Starting things off, like playing something comfortable versus the best deck, it is a little bit of an interesting topic. Uh, it happens a lot. I'm sure if you've ever been to a Magic tournament or something like this, you've heard someone say like, oh yeah, Death Shadow is the best deck or whatever, but I just really feel comfortable with Hardened Scales. I feel like that's kind of where my you know my bread and butter is. And I've played a lot of Hardened Scales, and so I'm just, you know, I'm playing Hardened Scales today. And it's an awkward spot to be, right? Because if your main goal is to win the tournament, how much better are you going to be with a deck like, you know, Shadow, which is maybe the best deck or perceived to be the best deck at that moment, versus something that is maybe worse, even significantly worse, but you know all the things and you know all the plans. It is an interesting kind of dynamic to be in. Yeah, I actually feel like this problem, quote-unquote, comes up a lot in Modern. Like, more than any other format I've ever seen. Legacy, even, it feels like people will, like, try to gather the cards they want for whatever they want to play. But for some reason, it, like, people just are going to jam their modern deck. I mean, I won one case with Scapeshift. It didn't take me long to move on from Scapeshift to Amulet Titan at my one case when I thought that that was a better deck choice. While you don't necessarily have to play the actual best deck... I think that you should not handicap yourself for no reason. You kind of hit the nail on the head, right? Handicapping yourself for no reason is never a thing you want to do if your goal is to win, right? So if you're someone who plays, especially in a format like Modern, Modern's format that's so broad and so many decks have so many good interactions with each other or or whatever, there's so much knowing a deck, or at least that's the way it feels in Modern, that if Grixis Shadow is the, is the deck of the week, Rhinos is the deck of the week, but you feel good about your matchup against that deck with whatever you usually play... Well, then you probably like don't need to worry about it that much, right? Like it, it's more about making sure that you're comfortable when you pick a deck. I, at least for me, like I, I always uh, kind of to a fault have played decks that I'm comfortable with, even even at the highest levels over decks that like were were better on paper. I have like a long history of playing like Jeskai Control in the fields of like KCI instead of maybe taking the time to learn a lot about KCI and, and invest my time there. When I did things like that, it's because my motivation was I knew that you know beyond all of the KCI players, or all these, the, the good decks in the format, the best decks, I knew what my matchups were, I knew what my position was, and I knew that, liked my chances in them. So if you're kind of caught between telling yourself you should change to the best deck because you think your deck is bad, or because you're worried about like some FOMO on playing a better deck. Because if it's just like fear of missing out, that like your deck might fail you, uh, and you'll wish you'd played something better, well then, that's just fear. If you, if you really th- feel like you are comfortable with your deck, 
you know, there's, there's no reason you should you should feel like changing, in my opinion. I think you both said a lot of that. I don't want to harp on it too much longer, but I do think because this is such a persistent topic of conversation and magic and thing that I do want to weigh in on the uh, idea that I normally tell people, which is uh, be a reasonable deck gamer. As long as your deck is reasonable, if it's a deck that a lot of people are talking about and writing about and considering, it seems to be a strong presence in the metagame, it is probably not that bad of a pick, even if it's not the best pick for that weekend. And so not doing things that are over the moon, like I'm going to play fiddle bender combo you know what i mean and like something like that where you're just kind of going off the whales like i don't even know if you two know what fiddle bender is it's the artifact pod oh okay i know you're talking from afr yeah yeah, it's a a two mana two two that's a pod of uh birthing pod for artifacts the next point on the show notes is literally what you just said right is like don't get too cute i think a really good example of this is like if you're to the point where you're like playing firewalker main to try and like fix something you might have gotten too cute this is a 1k i think be a reasonable deck gamer is like really good advice here because it's not that hard to just like take a step back and look at your list and if you showed this list to 10 people would they say dude think of how bad these firewalkers are going to be against kci in this kci like what are you doing learning what what it means to not be too cute for yourself it's really important it's really important to get those kinds of sanity checks don't get too cute can also mean like if people are playing like just because you think a bunch of people are playing like burn doesn't mean you should show up with soul sisters don't trick yourself into thinking that you like know every matchup you're going to play just because you have an idea of what people are going to show up with because it's modern and you don't yeah exactly (laughs) well well, every format right like think think about standard too though like how many times have you been like teamer energy is the best deck in the format or whatever it's like obviously the thing to beat you go to your 1k or whatever and there's like a teamer tower player and two blue white players and this person's on constrictor and sure you play against someone on teamer energy you play someone teamer energy in the top eight but four of the six matches i just listed are not teamer energy and that happens way more than people give it credit for the thing that i think that people always assume and doesn't make sense is that they think no one else will ever consider playing other decks and they will try to metagame and they don't consider these other things like well as long as i can beat teamer it's fine it's like well that's not true you're at a local 1k but people think that they don't want to play these teamer mirrors they don't want to invest in it they want to play this blue white control deck and kind of pound these teamer decks in the ground so they think and so now you got to be able to beat that sort of thing and if your deck isn't able to do that sort of thing, you're just not going to succeed because you got too cute. And you tried to like, big brand tournament where if you just played a reasonable deck with a good game plan that had a coherent thought behind it and you know what your deck's trying to do, you're going to get really far. Reasonable deck and kind of knowing what your plans are and what your role is and what you're trying to do in each matchup is a really powerful thing and gets underappreciated, especially at the 1K level, where if you just like keep it a buck, realistically speaking, your 1K probably does not have a swath of great players. It's just not a realistic thing that happens. Having a strong deck with a good game plan that you know, and it's reasonable, is very, very good for these sort of events. That being said, I'm playing a win a case this weekend. I'll be playing Yogmoth. Let's go! <laughs> I actually think that that Yogg deck is like a reasonable gamer deck for what it's worth. I, I think it's fine. Yeah, I think it's on the fringe of Reasonable Gamer. What's about making good mulligan choices, though, unlike the choices I'm making in my modern deck this weekend? And I think this is a huge part of Magic in general. And it's funny, every one of these topics could or has been or will be an episode of CC. You know, all four of these main points here. And making good mulligan decisions 
is one of the best ways to actually win a match of magic turn zero and making good mulligan decisions making bad mulligan decisions often make or break tournaments if you mulligan better than your opponents I don't have an exact number, but I imagine you win 15% more of your matches on average at minimum. I don't know how y'all feel about that, but I feel like mulliganing is like this huge skill that just gets under talked about and underappreciated and is critical because it dictates how you play your games. When you run back a game in your head, when you win or lose, usually when you lose and you go, what could I have done differently? Ultimately, at the end of it, the thing you always could have done is mulligan. And whether or not that's right is a question, but... It's such a powerful and big decision to make because of the fact that it influences everything else about the game you're about to play. You know, if you keep a loose hand, you keep a loose one-lander that needs something to get there, or you you mulligan too aggressively and wind up just without a, a hand that functions, both of those things are instant avenues to losing. You will just lose the game because, because of the decisions you make. Before anyone enters combat, before anyone plays a land, the game will be decided. A lot of the time what separates the people who are, you know, among the best players that you'll see around you in a local scene and the people who, you know, are still are still trying to fight their way up there is the consistency around making those kinds of good decisions and avoiding those big blunders, those big, like, match-deciding decisions uh, that are as simple as keepership. Like you said, we've done an entire episode on it, I think, in the last six months. Really, really great listen if this is something you want to want to make sure you, you study up on because mulliganing is just the most powerful thing you can do. Making disciplined mulligans is the biggest advantage you could possibly have at your local 1K or 3K or whatever. You need to know what hands you're supposed to keep and what hands you're supposed to mulligan. And like, if you're picking up a deck that maybe you don't have a lot of experience, drawing opening hands before the tournament and talking with them, with people about them, like, is going to be a big help. Just go to six. Like, it's basically free now. I think I posted this in the Discord that I was like undefeated on most of five with that Naya deck. It is so easier to mulligan now and know that you're going to like end up with a reasonable hand. A five is never good. A reasonable five is going to beat a bad six or a bad seven a lot of the time. Yeah, get down to the fives. We, we live in there. Yeah, I've had a lot of good fives with Hammer. I, I think that's just the mark of a good deck these days. I've gone down to five way more since the London Mulligan, and it, it does not feel as bad as you think it would. And honestly, we see this exacerbated in modern, right, with things like Death Shadow and Murktide and Jun kind of all doing this, where they're DRC Ragavan decks, and they get to have hands that are like two lands, Ragavan or a DRC, two points of interaction. And then that is actually just such a, so much better play than having like Nothing on one, Tarmogoyf, K-Command, a couple lands, and like a Nihil spell bomb or something. It's the world of difference. And even if you're down two cards in those sort of matchups, these one drops can like catch you back up. So think about how your deck tries to function and operate too. You know, we used to hard tail example earlier. Earlier, that might be a deck that doesn't get to mull as strongly, but maybe that's a little telling about the hardened scales deck. The most fun part about magic, when you get to talk to somebody who is new and getting into magic, and you ask them about their sideboard plans, and I had to have one. And then they often tell you they don't, or they haven't really thought about it, or they're thinking about it. And if you're listening to this and that sounds like maybe you, it's okay, but I am going to ask you the question, listener. How many matches of Magic do you play sideboarded? Is it less, more, or equal to non-sideboarded? The answer is on average more. You always play at least two games in Magic, unless you're getting some deck reg errors, in which case work on that. But you're going to have to play at least one sideboard game in every one, and then you'll just have a bunch of game three. So you're more often going to play more sideboarded games than any other game. So having a sideboard plan, coming prepared for that, 
and knowing your role in each matchup is super important. And let's kind of break that down. We've done a whole episode recently on preparing and sideboarding and how to build sideboard guides. So you want to go check out that episode to get more in depth there. But let's talk a little bit about what your role in each matchup is and talking about that sort of thing. Because I think that part of preparing is something we didn't talk a lot about on that past episode. When you're trying to know your role in a matchup, um, one of the things that if you actually watch the video that Abe and I did uh, where he's coaching me on Hammer Time, it was like one of the more interesting conversations is, is this a Thoughtseize matchup? And the reason that that question is important is because it changes the dynamic of the way that the game is going to play out when you decide that you're a Thoughtseize deck in a given matchup. It means that you value the information quite a bit, and you also value the loss of a mana, in all honesty. When you think about like a deck like Hammer Time, losing that mana is actually a lot of mana. Abe can probably talk about this way better than I can, but it was really interesting to kind of have those conversations in understanding, is my role to need this information and to take, some, to take a key card, or is my role to be the aggressor or to grind out? You can be both, right? You can want the information and have those things, but you have to decide what you value in the given matchup. And also, Abe and I had multiple times where the player of the draw was really important in making that decision. I could bring in Thoughtseize against just about every deck in Modern. Thoughtseize is never a card that you're going to be upset to have in your deck. It's a really, really strong, disruptive card, you know? People are going to have cards that they're trying to use, and taking one's really good, but, you know, in a deck like Hammer Time, all of your spells cost one or two mana, which means that the the opportunity cost of casting a Thoughtseize is like a whole turn. It's a whole spell's worth of development. It's a whole Esper Sentinel. It's a whole Springleaf Drum. It's half of an Urza Saga token. You know, it's it's a lot of mana and, and a lot of your time to use in a deck that's trying to set up this combo before or around turn three or four. Lots of times we can fall into the trap of feeling like, oh, all of these cards are good against what my opponent's doing. Thinking of the times where the card could be good rather than the times other cards could be better or what you want to actually do with your cards instead of just always thinking about all the upside or all the downside when it comes to to your sideboard cards and how they play with your deck. It's, it's all really linked together, thinking beforehand about what you envision the matchup playing out as and what it is you want your deck to do and how your cards can fit that function instead of just how can my cards interact with their cards is, is a huge part of making sure that you're sideboarding with a plan. One of the huge things that has been a change in Magic recently, for example, to kind of talk about how your cards play out in a given matchup, you used to not board out mana dorks very often against control decks because they were usually one mana. You know, Land of War Elves or Birds of Paradise, they just gave you a quick mana advantage, and they were also net positive on mana if your opponent did decide to kill them, right? Because they were using something like Doomblade to do that. Now that your mana dorks are two mana... It actually is a huge tempo loss for you to play a mana dork and get it killed. That's something that like magic has evolved and changed. And understanding that even though the mana advantage is important against something like a control deck, that's no longer your role. Your role is to have hard-to-kill threats against the control deck or threats that gain you an advantage when your opponent has to spend mana to kill them. In a similar vein of like the dynamic of things change and thinking about how those contexts change. It happens in matchup to matchup as well. If you take a deck like Blue-White Control in Modern, we don't even want to take any guess what its default position is. Blue-White Control, do you think it's the control or the aggressor? Hmm, curious. But there are matchups where it needs to be the aggressor and it needs to be jamming cards. And a great example of this is Four Color. Four Color is doing the same thing Blue-White is, except all its cards net a card more than Blue-White does. And it plays 
all the same cards almost. And the ones that doesn't play are better in the matchup than the ones that blue-white plays. So it's just a matchup where your opponent's literally just like, you are not as good as them. And so that being the case, you need to jam your things that are actually able to win a game like Teferi, like Jace the Mind Sculptor. And you need to be putting a clock on this game so that they cannot have the time to, they normally expect to against you. And that is a huge thing. And that's just an example of knowing your cyborg plan and knowing your role in the matchup and making your cyborg and cyborg according to that and not trying to fight these like long drawn out battles you can never win. Instead, try to condense the game into a spot where you can win. I think that like when you look at something like Blue White Control and Modern is a great example of understanding when I'm going to sideboard and I know that I'm actually supposed to be the quote-unquote aggressive deck what i'm actually looking for is ways to use more of my mana throughout each turn and get the most out of my mana whereas sometimes when the control deck on the other side i'm trying to not use my mana and play a reactive game when Mason says jamming, like he, he's talking like you have the mana, you're going to use it now. Like you've got to get on the board, make plays, find the spots where it goes against the grain, because those are the spots when you are understanding your role in making those sideboarding decisions that you're going to gain the biggest advantage. For your local events, do you guys ever like feel like you take into account kind of what the people who you know are going to be there are going to play? Like I don't know how big your 1Ks are, but I know recently I was playing uh, like a 2.5K locally it was modern and the last one i played i played against like the black red or grixis decks like three or four times over my five rounds well i didn't know this before but apparently a lot of people at the store like to play these decks and so i like leaned more into sanctifier deck for this metagame because it was different than you know the online metagame i'd been playing against at the time or even you know what i thought people would play or what i was prepared for from the week prior which was more solitude decks whatever do you ever find that like things like that you tap into more when it comes to your local events than let's say like a a magic online event or you know an, an arena event i'm preparing for the event i'm going to some players i think have this whole philosophy of like well you would never do that at a big event so why are you doing it here or whatever i'm not playing the big event i'm playing the local event so for example like let's say your 1k is like 60 people right and you know most of the people going there and you know that living in is not a thing, maybe cut those cards in your sideboard there just for living in. That's such a bad matchup or whatever. Unless you believe you can't lose anything except living in, and you know maybe somebody could get the deck or whatever. This happened at the store championship thing recently where when I played Grand Prix Vegas, I had the Immercool the Promise into my sideboard, and it was very, very good. It won me multiple matches, and I needed it in certain spots. I knew no one else was going to be playing four-color money pile, I knew we didn't have that many blue-white control players, and so I cut it and brought in a card like Veil of Summer, which is still reasonable in those sort of matchups, but has game in other spots where there are more of the black, red, and Grixis decks in my local store, and so I wanted to have more game for those decks. Picking your spots and picking your battles is super important. There's no reason to have four Chalice of the Voids in your sideboard when your main deck, and everyone at the store is going to be playing tap out blue-white control. Yeah, I don't know the last time that I didn't play Burn in the first three rounds of one of my local 1Ks, as well as like a Tron deck being in the top eight. So like those are things that I definitely consider going into my my 1Ks. When it comes to winning a local event like that, and especially when it comes to building your sideboard right, because that's where you're really going to gain those reasonable extra points, right? I said when we were talking about picking a deck, like you don't want to just bring Soul Sisters because you think there's going to be some Burn players there, because you can't guarantee you'll play against them. But that doesn't mean you don't want to make sure if you think there's a high chance in you know you're winning in for top eight your quarterfinals match you're gonna play against like one of the better players in your store who plays a lot of burn or you don't want to have 
a couple of extra hammers for a control matchup if the person who usually top eights all of your local 1Ks is a control player. And, and so things like that, I think, are important to, to think about, think about hedging towards your metagame more so than, like, getting too cute. Either find specific hammers for stuff you know that's going to be super popular, like Abe just said there, with, like, if you know all the best players that you're sort of play blue-white or burn, for example, having something like Core Firewalker might be better than having something like Sanctify Invect. But also, if, if you think your store is very diverse and it's we're all over the place, maybe have more cards like EE than having cards like Stony Silence or something like that that are more targeted. I'm a huge fan of flexible sideboard cards at my one case. While what Abe is saying is true, like you're going to know that like there's going to be a Tron player in the top eight in Utah. There's going to be you know, X number of people that like their friends had an extra burn deck so they came to the 1K to, to jam cards. If I'm going to prepare for burn, I would rather find something... Obstinate Bailoff, for example, is a really good example of like, yeah, this card is a really great card against burn, but also it's really good against, you know, Liliana or something or, you know, what, whatever it is. I haven't seen Liliana available in a year. I miss her. I want her back. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's, there's really got those Renin sixes now, so... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Grandpa, keep talking about Liliana the Veil. Let's get back inside. <laughs> Like, as a good rule of thumb, if you're going to take a step towards preparing for one matchup really hard, you got to make sure that you're still covered in some way against the matchups that you're sacrificing those points against, right? Like, part of the good part about putting Thoughtseize in my hammer sideboard is that I get to check off a bunch of matchups where I'm like, well, now I have a plan. My plan can be I'll Thoughtseize them and combo them and hope that that works out instead of just being like, I have no plan at all and I can't find enough cards to commit to, to everything at once and still cover the matchups I'm worried about. Thinking about that trade-off and being cognizant of that when you when you build your sideboard, I think, is make sure to want to get across here. Finally, the last part is playing for the win. This one is really important for, like, think about what your goals are, too, right, for the tournament, right? Like, if your goal is to go to the 1K, we've kind of been working on the assumption that your goal is to walk away there with some money and stuff like that. And it's to not be satisfied with just getting some amount of money. It's fun and great that your weekend, like, you got to hang out on Saturday, play some magic with the homies. It was free or whatever because you got top eight. But remember that it's important to, like, stay hungry and still want that top four split or that final split, right? Like, it's about drive, you know? It's about power, Spencer. Am I right? People get really mad at me when I won't split in one case. I'm usually the guy that says no in the top eight split. I'm not here for that. I would like to, like, take my wife out to a steak dinner and put some money in savings. That's just not why I'm here. I'm, like, here to win. I'm here to challenge myself. It's okay to, like be the guy that wants you know the equity do the math in your head it is easily worth 30 minutes of your time to play the match if you think you're gonna win it's worth the experience right like the number of 1ks that we we were having for a short amount of time where that's fine like i get it you want your time back but like the hunger to be able to say like i i won 500 this weekend playing magic or i won a thousand dollars this weekend playing magic i think people have forgotten how good it feels to just be the winner I think that it's important to like have that mentality going into a 1k top eight because if you don't have it and you're just looking for that shop you're gonna lose your edge that's just what gaming is but i think part of it does matter too what your goals and what your incentives are too right like if you're a college student who doesn't have a good budget splitting and getting your 150 or whatever is way better than losing and getting 50 bucks back or the possible 200 you're gonna get right from not splitting so that's what we talk about so much in the show it's so important to know where you are what your goals are what your agenda is and what you're trying to do in magic and in life and you have to know those sort of things so you can make choices like this i i'd honestly prison rules every 1k if they'd let me prison rules is winner takes all like you get to the top eight instead of chopping you prison rules it 
the first place gets uh, everything. I've never heard that expression for that, but that's awesome. At like my local pre, I think for it was the Forgotten Realms pre-release. It was like the last round we're playing for like winner gets five packs, loser gets three packs or something. It was like, do you want to just split four four? I was like, no, I want eight zero. Like, what's the point, man? We're playing pre-release. Who cares? <laughs> I think I don't remember the last time that I didn't go to a PPTQ where it was loser gets all the prizes, winner gets the invite. That's just the way it goes. You're, there's no invite on the line anymore, guys. Like you gotta go for the throat. Yeah, I think that's that is kind of I think where it comes from though. You know, like the amount of times I've split top eight and just played it out for the invite, like made it so that second place gets more. Right, those things exist because you know there's something else other than the than the monetary prize and the the like equity for most people. The split in top eight is so good. Like on on a one k you're not making more unless you're like losing the final it feels so much safer if you are someone who is really trying to take their game as high as it can go and get used to playing the most high stakes matches as possible like hayne talks about it uh, a lot on table for two and i think he might have brought it up during our episode with him hayne is actually the one who did this for me it was the first time that we had him on this podcast i was like what's the number one piece of advice you'd tell me to get better at magic he said never split again yeah because because he had this time before he qualified where he like he would lose the finals all the time, and he was like, "I just have to stop splitting. I don't care if it's better because I need to get better at playing under under pressure in these spots." There is not a lot better feedback than knowing that you could have had fifty more dollars or a hundred more dollars or whatever if you hadn't made that mistake and getting used to that kind of pressure. Playing for that GP top eight is going to feel a lot more stressful than playing for winning the one k. But you'll have a frame of reference for what it feels like to be that kind of stressed and have that kind of investment in the match of magic. And uh, you can't really get it elsewhere. And so don't feel like this means you should always, like Mason said, be realistic with yourself and know your goals, but don't get complacent with feeling like, you know, oh, I'm just chopping top eight and going home being enough. When you're in the top eight, you're playing with the seven other best players that day, right? You're playing with the seven people at the top of the standings and yourself. And so that's your best chance to play matches that are going to teach you things to have the most you take out of them or feel like they have the most stakes involved. So don't just give up on that. That is going to wrap up our main topic here of playing to win your local one Hopefully this was helpful. I mean, all of these sort of things are things that have, are, or will be an episode of CC. So if any of those topics, picking a deck from making good mulligans to having a side point plan to playing to win were interesting and you wish you had heard more of them, congratulations. This entire episode was just to sell you on past episodes. Ha ha ha. Go back and listen to them. We're going to explore these topics more and these are important things and they have to be thought about and everything we talked about can be applied to any sort of tournament, but we framed it in more of this sort of context. So keep that in mind. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash CCMTG to support the show. I think we have a patreon question we do would you like me to read it i would love it yes it comes from adrian shout out uh what are your favorite cards in cube it can refer to avengers cube legacy cube arena cube or whatever cubes y'all have played uh have you guys ever played mono blue cube uh no that one's a, I, I, we have a mono blue cube laying around at oasis that's pretty fun but i'm a three type of cube gamer i'm either a fetch land gamer a rampant growth gamer or a goblin guide gamer in cube. Those are my games. Those are my levels. I believe everything else is silly and wrong. If you were uh, not a coward, Spencer, you would say wrong to us there. <laughs> I'm either casting Lotus Cobra or rampant growth, or I'm casting goblin guide, or I'm got literally 17 non basics in my deck. That's how cube works guys. I think it depends on the cube. 
Also, Tango Wires should be banned in all cubes. Just throwing that out there. That's just wrong. Wrong. That's just factually untrue. That's hurtful. I will say, the cards I'm most excited to pack one, pick one, that aren't power. And even though I'm not really excited to take power, I just take it out of obligation. Are Strip Mine in Vintage Cube, followed by, like, a figure of Destiny, because I like to know I can go white or red. The thing about taking figure, pack one, pick one, is that you're still open. It's all, it's sure. all there. Okay. Um, <laughs> sure you are. You can, <laughs> I love the idea of it. You can be in white or you can be in red. As you all listen cube, to the Mary to Your Picks episodes? <laughs> arena Cube, I'm pretty partial to the aggressive strategies. So I, I like a Chandra or a Hazaret there. You, you might notice a recurring theme. But in the right kind yeah, of Yeah, that themes, you're a Goblin Guide gamer. Yeah, we did, we yeah. did get that. <laughs> yeah, but I do really like Soulfire Grandmaster, and I hate that it's only ever really supported alongside, like, Time Walk is this combo card, because it is my favorite card in Magic by a lot. And every time I get a chance to play with it, I do. I'm a Tangle Wire gamer. I take, I ha- I have taken and will take Tangle Wire over every piece of power. I have passed every Mox, every Black Lotus, every Time Walk, every Recall for Pack 1, Pick 1 Tangle Wire, knowing it would wheel steal. I like Tangle Wire. I like green and white cards i'm very partial to like mana accelerants and angels or just like a bunch of big green dummies but this weekend i played a lot of control tubert i got to play drake's tubert of control and i played a lot of tubert control this weekend so i have some new cards i'm partial to that are quite bad so get ready you learn about creeping tar pit i knew about the tar pit there's a lot to learn about creeping tar pit creeping tar pit is messed up in that tubert it is very, very good. I, I identified that one, but I was also kind of away from it a bunch of the times. Uh, I also got Body by Nathalia's Drowner in that thing. Cycle Complicate is my favorite and only way to play Complicate, by the way. I'm actually less into Cube than I'm into like Battle Box style gaming. Ten tap lands that you can play from at any time, and then like. I just find those type of games more interesting than Cube. I'll finish answering the question now. Uh, <laughs> and then my other big card is Sensei's Divining Top. I like when games slow down. I like I like a Tangle Wire, and Mason's I like a like, Sensei's Top. Mason's like, I'm not here for a good time. I'm here for a long time. I've got a lag switch in my deck. That's what I want to draft. I want as many loading screens and buffering issues as possible. I was issued a permit by Joe Lissette to, to use uh, Sensei's Divining Top at an efficient pace. I can play top at a quick pace. Joe Lissette never used Sensei's Divining Top at an efficient pace ever! What are you talking about? <laughs> I never said my test proctor was good. That doesn't I didn't... mean anything! <laughs> Thank never you, has. Adrian, so much for the question. Uh, if you have an answer to the question, make sure to leave a YouTube comment. Let us know uh, what your favorite cube cards are and why Tangle Wire should be ripped into pieces. Ever Amory Tangle Wire Spencer ever lived? Ever been alive? I've been I had a I had a Tangle Wire phase too, buddy. You'll you'll get over it. I will never it's my favorite card. <laughs> it's not a phase. I, it's not, it's not a, a phase, Mom! It's a lifestyle. I got the codex shredder and, and control tuber, by the way. That's a combo with Sensei's Divining Top. That's all I'm saying. That's a real clear the top of my oh decker. <laughs> Buy it back to... Change my answer. Whisper of the Muse is my favorite Keith card. That's a sweet one. Whisper of the Muse is a sweet Keith card. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Constructed Criticism. If you want to listen to other shows like this, you want to check out the rest of the network from Common Knowledge, which is a Popper podcast. Got you all your things you need there. There's now a Popper Council. Our people were skipped over, and we will be running for the Popper Council in 2024. So keep your ears low to the ground there. You might want to check out Drafting Archetypes with Sam Black. 
legitimately one of the best Magic the Gathering limited podcasts out there. You hear Sam Black's unique perspective on all 10 of the typical draft archetypes. And you get to hear the way Sam thinks about those sort of things, which is pivotal. You know, you listen to episodes of LR and Lords of Limited, you get a lot of stats and a lot of factors and a lot of different thought process. But Sam always looks at things in a very unique light. And having that sort of insight is incredibly, incredibly helpful. So make sure to check that out along with Homeward Path if you're a parent playing Magic. If you would like to maybe win some free store credit, make sure to go on over to youtube.com slash constructed criticism. Leave a comment. We're going to pick a comment and everyone who gets picked for the show. Uh, we answered after the Patreon questions, a new thing we're kind of starting. You're going to get some store credit to Oasis Games. So Oasis Games everything you need. I picked up three Urza Sagas today from Oasis Games. Had them, boom, ready to go. Nice, cheap, efficient, and you can use our promo code that you heard at the beginning of the show in order to get 15% off your first order and 4% back on every single order. If someone wants to find you, Spencer, where can they go? Find me on Twitter at Spencer13H. You can find me on the Constructor Criticism YouTube channel and the He's a Game Media YouTube channel, as well as my podcast, Need to Nerd, at Need to Nerd Pod on Twitter. Abe, where can people find you? Uh, twitter.com slash more no things and you can dm me there for coaching on hammer time where i will teach you all things bonk and you can find me on twitter.com slash uh, at mason e clark and you also made twitch.tv slash the mason clark uh streaming pretty consistently moderino there from there you can actually find everything social media wise it's all kind of there it's pretty great Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Constructed Chrism, and we'll see you back here next week for another episode of CCMTG.